what is going on in America today is becoming more in like the country I left, you know, becoming more police state, government becoming more and more powerful. It's scary to me. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, my little Liberty lambs, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 221. And that, of course, means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com slash 221. The show is sponsored today by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution for your healthcare needs. Find out more at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the Libertarian nominee for U.S. Senate in the state of Colorado this year. She is the former state chair of the Libertarian Party of Colorado and currently state director for Our America Initiative. She's deservedly garnered some attention to her campaign with a passionate speech she gave recently at the Libertarian Party National Convention in Orlando, and she is here to share that story with us today. She is Miss Lily Tang Williams. Lily, before we get going, I've got to know, are you ready to roar? Yes, I am. All right, Lily. I know you are because I've seen your speech. I've seen your posts on Facebook. I can tell you're a passionate person. And that's why we roar here at Lions of Liberty, because we're passionate about the ideas of liberty, too. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how you became so passionate about these ideas and why you're currently running for U.S. Senate. And we'll get up to all that stuff in a bit. But first, I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. And you do have quite the story. Your life, of course, began in the country of China. So if you could just start off by telling us kind of what area of China you grew up in and what the conditions were like for you? Yes, I was born in Chengdu, Sichuan province, two years before Mao's Cultural Revolution. To give you an idea where we lived, it was like a commune, free government housing provided, of course, by my mom, dad, state factories, eight families living in this courtyard. We had a one bathroom for all women, one bathroom for all men, and one faucet for all family eight households. So the memory I have about my childhood, I lived in this place for 16 years. It was just constantly, you know, struggling for food, you know, hunger, poverty, poor living conditions, and the social economical chaos. This bathroom I told you about is really just a big hole on the ground. So if you go to the bathroom, if you're not careful to squat as a child, you could fall backwards into that big hole. That was my nightmare. Oh no, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be good at all. That would scare that would scare me every day. <laughs> I know that's a plus. At night, when the night bulbs are broke, nobody cared to replace that night bulb because nobody owns the bathroom. And so that as a child, you go to bathroom in the pitch dark light, and too poor to have a flashlight. It was really scary. So I would just try not to drink any water before bedtime so I didn't have to get up at night to go to the you know public bathroom. Of course, the place we live is like two rooms. That's all, two rooms with outdoor kitchen my dad built. And two rooms, that means a family of five sleeping there, no family room, no living room, no heating, no air conditioning, no appliances. We had a mud floor which is a, not a concrete floor people have now. It's a mud floor. In the winter, it was so wet and cold. And I mean, actually, you can grow mushrooms <laughs> inside of your apartment. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so that uh, in the summer, because we were at a very low elevation, all the rain comes and the flood were coming. So we had to get up sometimes summer nights to start to build a brick wall to stop the water from coming. So when you talk about free government housing and uh, imagine that's how we lived and how I lived for 16 years there. Did you have any sense growing up of, you know, how conditions might be elsewhere, either elsewhere in China, maybe in some of the bigger cities or elsewhere in the world? I mean, did you have any sense that there was any other way to live, really, other than the way that you were living, which was, you know, in these conditions? Or was it just kind of accepted that this was just, you know, what life was to you? Well, I would say probably 90% of people that uh, I know in Chengdu lived like us. 
But、uh, one time, I did go to a friend's apartment. His dad is a high military official. It's like a almost like general level, and of course, the Communist Party member. And their place were a lot better. They had the indoor plumbing. They had like a faucet in their own home. I was just so jealous. It's like, wow, that's so nice, so convenient. And their own bathroom too, in their own apartment. And I just couldn't understand,、uh, you know, why like they had such treatment because in the a communist country, remember everything's supposed to be equal, right? I mean, that's the slogan we learned from the government. And we supposed to be all treated equally. We all share everything, but I could tell there are huge differences between the top. I would say one percent versus people at the bottom ninety nine percent. So it was not the communist utopian that、uh, you know we dream to have. Of course, about the people in other countries, we were brainwashed by our government, and two third of the world population were starving. So we should be grateful. That's what you were told. You were told that two thirds of the world was starving, right? So we supposed to be happy, content. Just be happy you're eating anything or alive at all, I guess. Right. Even though we had the food rationing, government tell you how much you should eat, and we had the two kilograms of pork per month for family of five. We were constantly hungry, and that's why I mentioned it about、uh, we had to learn to trap some rats. And to catch the rats to eat to supplement a little bit of protein, of course there was not much meat, and pretty soon even rats ran out. Then you had no protein at all. Beans were expensive, so we had the most time just had the rice. When you run out of dry rice and you don't have much rice left, you drink rice porridge. That means you make rice in lots of water. That you drink that porridge. I just remember after one hour you were hungry after that porridge. I'm the oldest child. My parents will send me out to the field to say we don't have money for vegetables now. You go to field to get some whatever green stuff you can find. Bring home. We will boil it, add some salt and pepper sauce, and put on top of rice. That could be our meal, you know. So as a child, I just remember I smell. Neighbors、uh, sometimes when they are cooking their milk powder on the little stove, and it smells so wonderful. Milk powder was a luxury we could not afford. Now we had to get up like early in the morning to go stand long line to get a bag of potatoes with our government coupon. I remember I had to get up at five o'clock in the winter morning, take my little store, and lined up in long line. If you were late, and then it would be sold out. It was so cold in the winter morning. I had to constantly stand up and just,、uh, you know, like、uh, running around to keep myself warm. But we had to do that in order just to get some、uh, potatoes. Wow. So,、uh, Lily, at, at any point, you know, you saw your conditions and you, you understood what they were, and you, for at least for a, a large amount of your childhood, probably just accepted that this was the way it was had to be. It's what you were told by the government. But you did see, you know, like you said, you saw that government official who lived differently, and and that kind of maybe planted a seed in your mind that well, maybe things aren't exactly as I see them. So I'm curious if at any point did you have any conversations with your parents at a certain age? Did you ever say, you know, why are things like this? How come some of these government Officials have more than us. If you know, if everybody is starving, did you ever start to to question these things? Well, I did ask my parents, and they told me, well, because my parents are illiterate working parents, they don't have education, they don't have connections, they don't have powerful positions. That's the way our life is. That's why my parents always encourage me. Whenever you can, you got to get the best education. And then you can climb up in your career ladder to get the more important official positions. And then you will be better off. Because I was a very good student. My parents could not help me with school, but I become very good student. Partially because at age of six, my parents asked me to stay home to babysit my one-year-old brother. They could not afford childcare. Actually, by their factory, they had to pay. It's not like a free childcare people had in mind. They couldn't afford that. They asked me to stay home to watch him, and so I could not go to school until seven. I was home for a year to babysit 
my baby brother, and they bought me a movie ticket to bribe me to make me happy because I was crying for three days. And they bought me this ticket to watch uh, um, Czechoslovakia people fighting Nazis. You know, it was very popular to watch a foreign movie. And be honest with you, that the first time I ever saw people kissing uh, between man and woman were in the foreign movies. I never saw Chinese kissing. <laughs> is that a cultural thing that was is kind of just has historically been there? Or was that that idea of not kissing in public, was that, did that have anything to do with the, sort of the Cultural Revolution and uh, the Mao regime? Well, that, uh, of course, the Confucius' culture uh, encouraged modesty. So we were not supposed to show public affections. But the Mao's Cultural Revolution made it a lot worse. We could not even talk about love. Sexuality was banned. Boys write love letters to girls would be publicly denounced. Um, we were allowed, encouraged to say love publicly to Chiang Mao, to Communist Party. You could not talk about private love. You know, like a romantic love was banned. Girls supposed to wear approved hairstyles, unisex clothes, do not show your body curves. Cannot talk about boys and girls. It's all not politically correct. I remember I had this hairstyle with bands front of my hair, forehead. I was accused to be little capitalist. And they wanted me to pull my hair back and show my forehead, look like a little revolutionary. But I saw that was so ugly. So I just wear my band when I was little. And regardless what people say, but I could not wear colorful clothes, bright color, like flowers and bright red or just beautiful colors. And because everybody is wearing white, green, blue, and to be conforming to everybody else. So I had to do that. Once in a while, I will wear a little inside a shirt with color, show a little bit bright color. You know, that's why, you know, I'm so big on personal freedom because I went through that period when government just basically controlled every aspect of your life. So you were a little rebel even back then uh, against the system, even in small little ways, even if it was just doing your hair a little bit different or showing just a, a tiny bit of color. Right. My husband, actually, my American husband said that you were born libertarian. You just did not know it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And another thing I did is that I learned at age of seven, I could not trust anybody. I told my girlfriend I would be the first one to join Young Pioneer, which is a mouse grassroots organization for elementary school student. And she told my teacher, and my teacher said, I'm not going to nominate you to join Young Pioneer in the first group because you are too confident. You're not a humble. And I'm supposed to be humble like everybody else, not fool of myself. She said, uh, your personal confidence expression are not allowed in our collective society. So I learned not to trust any of my friends. I even trying to be quiet, even with neighbors and with my family members. Who knows? That's kind of society that you just cannot trust anybody. So when I started to write diaries, I figured out there's one kind of diary you have to turn teacher for review. There's another kind of diary which is totally personal, private. You don't show anybody. And I also learned how to keep all my old pictures. That's why people today can see my living evidence of me under Chairman Mao's regime, these pictures from past. If I was caught to have a photo album to keep all my personal photos, I will be denounced, criticized. It's not politically correct thing to do because you're too sentiment as a human being. That's just not right. Other people are not too sentimental, but I wanted to keep pictures, not even think about her being in the United States running for office someday. I would just think about those are my life. I wanted to have a memories, but I learned to keep a quiet and private photo album, did not let anybody see it. I just hide them in the in a home we live in, which is a two little room, tiny apartment. Like you said, I guess I always got a little fire spirit in me, but I learned to conform. I learned to be smart. And they did brainwash me to believe whatever party was doing, what the Mao was doing is good for us. So that's what you call those are good slaves. They did not know they're slaves. You actually are very thankful 
for the party, for Chiang Mao, what they're doing, you know, and thank them to save us from a hungry situations. And, you know, I was very, very grateful. I believed Mao. He become like my God. You know, sometimes when I go out in the nice day, nice clouds in the air, I could see Chiang Mao's face in the clouds and talking to me. You know, his face will come up in the fire. You know, think about you were indoctrinated like 10 years every day in your life, you know, and believe that he is like a God. That's our religion. We could not practice any other religions. I was raised as Buddhist, but our temples were shutting down. You couldn't go there to worship your God. Plus, if you do, you'll be criticized. You cannot join Young Pioneer or Red Guard, all those uh, communist organizations under Mao, you know, that means you'll be excluded. You're not politically correct. The public pressure is so huge on you if you are not part of those organizations. But I had to learn just to conform and to move up. And and luckily, my parents were not uh, counter-revolutionaries. They were not uh, property owners. They were classified as a red class. You know, the government classified people into 10 classes, five red, five black. So my parents were red class, so I could move up in the so-called political correct class. So what did those colors actually mean then? So red class meant that you could not move from your current social status, basically? Well, red class, that means uh, you were part of a proletarian group. You are peasants and workers and people's liberation army and the good people, right? Government officials and but the bad black class includes landowners, business owners, merchants, I mean like big merchants, and the county revolutionaries who are dissidents. And uh, of course, uh, they call the stinky intellectuals, intellectual people who are dissidents, who do not agree with uh, you know, parties' uh, policies and, and criticize them. So they divided us up. I have friends who never could join Young Pioneers throughout the elementary school because uh, they were classified as a black class. Imagine those kids' life during the Cultural Revolution. It was just all oh, total oppression. You know, I feel sorry for some of friends who could never move up. Wow. So how did you move up and move out? Because you did eventually sort of break three from those conditions. Obviously, you're here now, but you even started to do that during your time in China. You went to law school, I know, in Shanghai. So can you kind of describe how you were able to sort of break through uh, these sort of pre-prescribed sort of social statuses that you're given? I don't know when I could break through if Mao wasn't dead. See, Mao died 1976. I was 12 years old, and uh, we cried for days and days to mourn his death. Of course, if you did not cry, you might be criticized. You're supposed to be very sad. Every morning, 6 o'clock a.m., that uh, the community loudspeakers will come on with very sad music. So a couple years, I think, later, that the, the Communist Party came out to clarify Mao is a human being. He's not God. And Mao made a mistake. At 10 years, Cultural Revolution was a mistake. So my generation heard that status, that statement, <laughs> were totally lost because that was our religion. Mao was like our God. You were seeing him in the sky. You're seeing him in the clouds. That's how brainwashed you are. And then now they're just saying, sorry about that. We were wrong. He was wrong. <laughs> right. We were no longer chanting now. That's long live amazing. to my mouth. Because long live means think about what? He's immortal. He will live forever. <laughs> we used to chant long live to my mom, long live party. So after he died, we were lost and we were depressed. We did not know what to believe. And uh, you got to look at some of my old pictures, you know, we look really sad. But then we had a new goal, new dream. When during Mao's revolution, colleges were shutting down. Remember all the red guards were sent to countryside to be re-educated by the peasants. I lost three uncles to that. They were gone for a decade. So when Mao died, they restarted opening of colleges and uh, you have to pass this three days nationalized college exam in order to be enrolled to any four years 
and state colleges. Of course, there was only college we had. It's all state colleges. So we had a new goal. Our high school was two years. So from 14 years old to 17 years old, about three years time, I was totally focused on, I'm going to go to best university possible in China. Like my parents encouraged me to get the best education so I can have a better life and better career, make better money and get out of Sichuan. Sichuan is southwest of China next to Tibet. It's a little isolated. I wanted to go to Shanghai, Beijing, two biggest, uh, you know, like uh, coast cities and, and to get more information, get more educated. So I was focused on studying to test with my teacher's help for like the next three years. And uh, that was my new dream, my new goal. And forget about all that, uh, you know, communism stuff because Mao is dead and now we can just focus on study. Even though it was still big pressure for you to be politically correct, we had a mandatory, one of the subjects to study in school is called uh, um, politics. The politics is all about indoctrination. You learn about the party history, you learn about uh, uh, Mao's quotations, and uh, they want you to be supportive of Communist Party policies and all the uh, socialist regimes. And so we had to learn that as part of our studies. And once a week, of course, we'll get together and talk about, you know, who is not doing right and who is not politically correct. And so pressure is still there. But at least now we get to really study, solve problems and trying to go to college. I had a dream to go to law school because when I was 16, I was in high school visiting my beloved math teacher as a class president. He told me he was a fresh college college graduate in the 50s. And the party said, come on, kids, give us your true feedback. How are we doing? They were naive. They criticized party. They give true feedback. Then they get on the blacklist. They were all sent to the neighbor camps in the countryside. His health was ruined. So he told me, our country is ruled by men, not ruled by law. That just hit me so hard. I thought, hey, look, I'm smart enough. I can go to law school. Maybe I will transform China to a rule of by law society someday. You know, that would be great, you know, for our country. So I wanted to go to law school, ignore all other subjects. So before my 17th birthday, I took this three days college entrance exam, eight hours day. And uh, think about just take your ACT for three whole days, right? You, you know, my brain was about. I didn't to even want to take it for a couple hours. So <laughs> <laughs> my brain was just so tired. I think after that three days, I sleep for one week to catch up my sleep. But I did well. I went to the top five Chinese universities. I got my first choice, Fudan University in Shanghai. Go to study law. But uh, quickly though, after I went to Shanghai Law School. I become very disappointed. The first day in our law school class, we were taught what is the purpose of law? Well, you were saying it's to protect rights and property and freedom. No, they told us the law is just tool for the governing class to use to govern its people, its masses. We call the masses. It was a Soviet Union model. And they don't even hide that from you. They tell you right up front, this is why you're studying this. So No, no, not, not even try to hide it. So we wow. become so disenfranchised. We argue with our professors during law school class. So how come we have Chinese constitution to say people have a freedom of speech and freedom of you know, press, but in reality, we don't have any of that. And the professor said, well, there's nothing I can do. I can only teach you theories. Reality is controlled. By the party. So for all our students who were very ambitious, we feel like uh, so disappointed and so depressed. Like, uh, what can we do now? We go through four years law school and reality is like this. We did rebel in the college. As I said, we don't have God anymore. We don't believe communism anymore. Even in first year of law school, we were told, don't date. and Don't think about men. Don't think about women. When you graduate, the party will get your job, will get your spouse. <laughs> and uh, but who listened to them? You know, by then we all were rebellious teenagers, and, and uh, so I dated. And other people dated in secret. 
We also were told not to have hair done, not to wear blue jeans, go to school campuses. And later we did it anyway. So, for, so finally, the educational minister had to say, well, just let those college kids, you know, and wear blue jeans, let their hair down because we couldn't control the gate anymore. I mean, otherwise, every day there's like a big argument in front of a university campus gate, like about your dressing style, your hairstyle. And also we had a dancing parties every weekend and they're trying to shut down all our dancing parties, but they couldn't. So by the time I was a sophomore and junior in college, we had dancing party every weekend. <laughs> it was a big liberation. You listen to Western music, we dance wards and you know two steps and and even disco. That was my favorite because when you dance with disco, you feel total like a self liberation. You feel free. You can move any way you want with your body. Express your feelings. Express your you know attitude and. It was great. I mean, it was great exercise too. It must have been even more amazing for you when you grew up, you know, for so many years, basically being told you're not allowed to express yourself. You're not allowed to display these kinds of things in public. Right. We were told only sing revolutionary songs. We were told uh, only do revolutionary dances. So, And we only listen to Peking opera, some approved music. So our choices were very limited. After we went to college, we were exposed to Western ideas, Western music, Western professors and students. I remember in like a junior year, I had this really long black straight hair and I would do disco dance and my hair would be like being throwing around in the air that just feel great. <laughs> <laughs> and of course that uh, we were still taught to conform. We just rebelled. What happened is that... Uh, I met a foreign student from America. He's from East Coast. He showed me a pocket constitution when we were alone. And with my limited English, I could understand the words. Like all men are created equal. We have those uh, natural rights given to us by our creator. I was like, wow, I never heard this in my entire life. It's just complete a new concept. You mean I have natural rights not given by my government? <laughs> I'm supposed to have them myself. Nobody can take away. And so I would go back to him to say, tell me more about America. You know, to see a foreign student, we have to register at their gate, gate of their dormitories. And I learned not to register because I would be watched. Like, why did you go to see an American student so many times? And they would have a meeting with me. So I just uh, trying to slick in without getting attention from this lady who was watching the gate. And I would just go there and talk to him, talk to him. So he really changed my life. You know, it's like a light bulb just all of a sudden come on. And I said, you know what, someday I would like to go to America. If someday I have to leave China, this is a country I would love to live. I will have a guaranteed rights and guaranteed freedom and government will leave me alone. So that day did come. After I graduated from law school, I become one of the five students got offered faculty positions to teach. We were the first graduation class as a just a bachelor degree and uh, they needed teacher badly. So I stayed in Shanghai to become faculty member also practice law part-time on campus. And uh, that's when I realized reality kicked in. I was controlled by the law school, Communist Party committees, and they're the one who control everything, even though we have had a dean, but dean was only doing academics. So we all had to be pressured to join Communist Party. You cannot work in law school if you were not a party member because they, they doubt your loyalty. So you have to really, you know, be loyal to the party and by joining the party. And that's when my Communist Party boss constantly, constantly just, uh, you know, get into my daily life, you know, wanting to teach me how to talk to students, review my lecture notes. He even tell me I can no longer socialize with my students, my friends who are just like one year or two years younger than me because I just graduated at age of 21. They're like a 19, 20-year-old. He told me I should not go to dancing parties anymore because I am a faculty member now. I work. It's like for the party, for the state. 
And I had a boyfriend in Shanghai. Then he told me, you're not married to him. You should not go visit his parents' home and have a sleep over there, even though I was invited by his parents and share a bed with uh, his sister. So I said, you know, why do you care what I do with my personal time? I'm not working as a faculty. He said, because it's just not politically correct for you to do. you got a lifestyle problem. Because we said so. They don't need to give you a logical reason. It's just because that's what the party says. Right. So after first one year and a half of life like that, I become so depressed. I say, is this my life in China? Can I imagine what I would look like after 20 years of oppression like this? I would die inside. So I decided uh, this is not my country. I need to look into other options. The other option is that the uh, United States is open to Chinese to go there, to apply for their universities, colleges, and to go get a graduate degree. And if you basically figure out financial help yourself. So I contacted this uh, American professor I met in college. He became my sponsor and he helped me to apply to University of Texas in Austin because that's where he taught journalism. He was a Fulbright scholar, professor, and visiting our college when I was a student there. So he said, I will help you get out of China. Here's a problem. To get out of China, I have to have a permission from my communist boss to say, allow me to leave, to apply for passport. So I had to stop fighting, change his strategies. Right. I had to start to really butter him up, right? To conform to whatever he wants me to say, he wants me to do. And for a few months, I went to him, said, uh, may I have an opportunity? Have you permission to go apply for my passport? I got uh, enrolled by University of uh, Texas and Austin. Because I was nice to him for many months and doing whatever he wanted. He said, well, you can leave. You can go apply for a passport, but you have to sign this contract. The contract is that I have to go back to China immediately after my master's degree. I also have to pay my company's party dues. Ugh. And if I <laughs> can't, get, can't get away from these guys, huh? Right. If I don't go back on time after my graduate degree, they're going to kick me out of party. And I didn't care about that. <laughs> yeah, but then he also said, uh, we're going to send you a personnel file to Chengdu if you don't come back. To teach you about personnel file, it's a file you have when you start a school, an elementary school in China. You have individual files, it's a secret. You cannot see it. Your parents cannot see what's inside. It documents everything about you. Then you go up to your future jobs as a personnel file when you're working. And this file basically follow you until you die. Every time when you change a job, you have to go by this personnel file to show where your residential status is. So my personnel file was in Shanghai, my law school. If I don't go home, they're going to send that back to Chengdu. That means I can never go back to Shanghai to work because you lose your official residential status. To give you an idea, if you work in Chengdu today, have an ID there, national ID called a personnel file there. If you want to go to Shanghai, you get a job there. It will take you 10 years to transfer. It's really tight, highly controlled you know, movement. Even of now to this day? Yes. And uh, some people become a floating population. They will travel around, get a job, work in different cities, but they don't have official city resident status. That means some benefits will be affected. And it's easier to go downwards, to go from Shanghai to Chengdu or Chengdu to countryside. But it's because the big cities are really tightly controlled. And it's the first tier city. Chengdu is second tier city. It's very difficult. I said I had to sign this. In order to leave China, I had to do everything he wanted me to do. So I signed the contract. Of course, I did not go back. I'm sure today my file is in my hometown, Chengdu, security bureau somewhere. They're, they're waiting for you, huh? Yes. You mean, talking about being hunted sometimes. So can you essentially, I mean, never go back to China? Well, I can still go back. It's just uh, that my file is there. Is there some risk to that, though? Well, I am an American citizen now. Right, okay. So it's the Chinese visa. And so after I run for U.S. Senate, I don't know. If they're watching me carefully... And uh, they could put me on blacklist to say, we just don't want you to come back. You're not welcome to come home anymore. 
maybe you'll be sent on a diplomatic mission as our next U.S. senator from Colorado. <laughs> well, if I have a democratic uh, immunity, that's no problem. They have to be careful what they say do to me. But the thing is, if I don't win, I, I try to go to China. They could put me on watch list to say, you're not welcome to come back here. But I have extended family in China still. My three uncles and my cousins, I have still have one younger brother there. And uh, so, but the sense of I have to master my fear. Otherwise, uh, how many Chinese immigrants like me will come out, run for U.S. Senate and tell the truth and, uh, you know, totally against the tyranny like me? You know, I feel like I'm obligated. It's my new citizen's duty to come out to tell my stories under communism, under Mao. And uh, I mean, China is more freer now than in the past, especially economically freedom. People can start business, they can travel, and they have lots of money. They have become more wealthy, which is a good thing. I tell the truth. Economic reform in China lifted 600 million Chinese out of poverty in the last 40 decades. It's a good thing. They just need more political freedom. They cannot vote. They cannot take on the Facebook or take to straight. They cannot buy their own firearms. All those political freedoms are very important to me, too. And dissidents are being put in jail today. And the Christians are being prosecuted if they don't follow so-called their, you know, guidelines. So, I mean, I mean, I have to tell the truth. I say, hey, you economic reform is a good thing. You need to have more of that, not less. Central economy, you know, failed and starved people to death. But at the same time, they need to have more um, political freedom because you still have one-party dictatorship. And they're totally corrupt. And I'm running for Senate in this country now because I can identify what is going on in America today is becoming more like the country I left, you know, becoming more police state, government becoming more and more powerful. It's scary to me. It certainly is scary. And Lily, we're going to talk a little bit more about your campaign in just a minute. But first, I need to speak to my listeners about something else that can be pretty scary, which is dealing with their health insurance companies and the exciting alternative presented by Health Excellence Select. Now, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing. A killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Well, Lily, let's talk a little bit more about how you kind of refined your ideas and got more involved with uh, the Libertarian Party and, and just libertarianism in general. So, I mean, I, obviously it, it sort of started for you with that glimpse at the Constitution that you got from your friend. And uh, that seems to have started the, your ideas of the fact that you have natural rights, that, that you don't get your rights from the government. So once you sort of started to reside here in the United States, how did you find yourself sort of uh, refining those ideas and eventually becoming politically involved? I just had an American dream when I first came over. I did not know all the concepts, all the details. I just wanted to get out of China. I had $100 borrowed. I couldn't speak English when I first came 28 years ago. I owe my professor sponsor $1,200. But I just thought, hey, I will be left alone by government. I can work hard, learn English, save money, maybe start my own company and make a decent life here. So I went to graduate school. I met my husband, who happened to be libertarian, and we've been married for 26 years with three children. We started our own business. So he has been always teaching me about libertarianism, but I did not get it. At the beginning, I did not understand. I was statist. If you are brainwashed all your life, 
you only know one solution, that's government. Government is a solution to our problems. I cannot think freely. You know, guess how long take him to help me to reverse my lifetime indoctrination by Chinese government. It's 20 years. I become libertarian in 2008. I came to this country in 1988. I was, uh, you know, of course, struggling with English, with money, and I had to learn from scratch and starting from square one. So once my English got better, um, my husband started to appoint me to read some books. And he actually told me about uh, mouse lies and uh, mass starvation because we thought the mass starvation was caused by three years natural disasters. That's what the government told us. And he told me, Lily, no, it's mouse central planning policies. Those people starved to death. You were lied to all your life. And I got so mad. At the beginning, I thought that he was telling me the lie. But later, when I started to do research and read stuff, and I said, oh, my God, it's like a... You thought this guy was just making stuff up to win you over or something, huh? <laughs> right. I miss China. I was homesick. Right. And also, I was statist. You know, I just did not know. So I start to read some stuff. I start to pay attention and uh, watch lots of also educational uh, documentaries. And, and uh, so I start to change my mindset. I start to become interested in American politics. And uh, I did not join Democrat Party, even though I had lots of Democrat friends, because I thought uh, they always want to use government, which I'm supposed to oppose, right, after being through China. But then I saw the Libertarian Party is uh, small, powerless. So I joined Republican because... I thought they believe in limited government. So I was Republican for many years, did my internship and become a grassroots kind of activist, serve on the board of homeowner association and become charter school board member and chairwoman. And uh, until I voted for Bush and the Republican control everything in the government. And I was so mad. They did not do anything. They actually grew government, grow debt. They gave us the Patriot Act. They gave us no child left behind, Medicare D, and all that big government stuff. I, I said, finally, 2008, I could not vote for McCain. Of course, I could not vote for Obama. I told John, let's go to check out Libertarian Party, <laughs> and I'm voting Libertarian this year. So we become religious libertarians 2008. Ever since, we never went back. And uh, once I become politically aware, I drag my husband out. My husband is that kind of intellectual libertarian who don't do anything. <laughs> and I say, John, this our country is going down wrong path now. Let's put money where our mouth is. Let's go out. So I drag him to the state party convention 2012. And there we made lots of friends. And uh, they even nominated me to go to national convention. And so I become uh, like a national delegate and uh, nominated Gary Johnson that year, become Gary Johnson's district coordinator. And I, I sort of, I kind of like this uh, political activism. <laughs> and 2013, what the Colorado legislature trying to do is limit the gun magazine to 15 rounds. That really scared me. That got me jump off the sofa for the first time in my life. I went to state legislature, testified as a citizen. Now, why did that scare you so much? Because, you know, as you know, I mean, there was a recently a tragic shooting in Orlando. And anytime that there is a, a shooting like this that receives a lot of attention, that's just one of the many, you know, quote unquote, common sense gun control measures you'll hear. You'll hear, well, why should anyone need a magazine that holds more than eight rounds or 10 rounds? So what's your objection to that? Well, you know, if, when people express those concerns and they say something like that to you, they say, Lily, why did someone need a magazine that holds that kind of of in a capacity. I think that's my first uh, really strong awakening process that uh, what happened in this country is becoming like a China. I was never a big uh, crazy person about guns, you know. I practiced using shooting some guns and uh, but I knew second amendment is always in the constitution is going to be there forever. But when they started trying to infringe my right of uh, you know, buying the weapons, defending myself and, and trying to limit it. I got scared for some reason. I just feel like, oh, my God, I can no longer trust the Constitution is going to protect me. I better go there to tell them my story, why I came to this country, and why I treasure my Second Amendment right, 
We could not own and buy guns in China. And we were slaughtered 1989 Tiananmen Square, our students were. And uh, I, you know, tyranny kills millions, millions of people. But now the politicians trying to limit my rounds, but not criminals don't listen to your laws. They do whatever they want. What if government had all the weapons, all the tanks in the world? I got scared. I jumped in there. I testified. Of course, they still passed it. Before they passed the law, become effective. I jumped into shop, bought my first AR-15. And so I could be grandfathered in. I don't have to be restricted to 15 rounds. So that's how scared I was. I, I spent $1,500 to buy my first AR-15 with uh, regular rounds, with 30 rounds. I got three rounds. So it's like 90 shots. And and uh, after that, I published my article with a friend's help on National Review Online, talking about guns against charity and from a Chinese immigrant perspective. Then 2014, I was recruited to run for state house by Nick, who is our national chair right now. He Thanks was- Mark, a- yep, great guy. He's been on the show before. Yeah, he's my friend. He recruited me. He was vice chair of Colorado. Lily, we need you to run. I said, Nick, I'm not ready. I still have a Chinese accent. <laughs> and then Nick said, you are ready, Lily. We need you to run. So when I committed to run, I committed to run. I go out. I was active campaigning. Everywhere I go, I found people resonate with my messages. They always gave me like loudest applause, a standing ovation. And uh, I thought, you know what? This is a kind of fun. People are listening to me, actually. And maybe I can contribute to wake up Americans to fight for freedom. So so I had a, I got a 6.4% the first time I ran for state house, which is 66% Republican district. That is a high number for a libertarian to receive. Right. For the people even did not know me. So after that, I thought, you know, the more I become politically active, the more scared I become for our country. I got into common core fight. So be- after my campaign is over, I become more famous because of my common core fight. I made a YouTube video called Common Core. It's a communist core I had in China. So I got lots of followers. I've been traveling around state. Then 2015, I ran for state chair, become state chair unopposed. And this January, I resigned for as state chair so I can run for U.S. Senate full time. But by then, two years later, my Facebook likes already built over 11,000 likes. And, and of course, my AR-15 picture where I counter that Obama's executive order. And I tell people, you know, I once was a slave before. I will never be one again. I was holding my own AR-15 in front of a U.S. flag. And that picture went viral, got me lots of followers. And I think that uh, I'm really worried for this country. I'm glad, I'm encouraged to the libertarian movement is gaining traction this year. But even before that, I have people trying to talk to me, going back to the Republican Party, running for them. I just can't. My principle, my conscience tells me I cannot identify myself with a party who continues to grow state power over us. I become true believer of libertarianism, of course, after years of learning and reflecting of my life in China. It took me so many, actually, waves and cryings to, to be fully a free thinker. I have to say, how come my life was like that? How come most of my friends today still don't realize that in China? They are happy. They think my message is radical. They are still pretty damn good slaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have to educate them. <laughs> Oh, Lily, it really is a fascinating story because, you know, the brainwashing uh, you received in China through your education, through government officials, uh, maybe somewhat through your parents as well, just because they were brainwashed. That was a very extreme case of that. But we see the same kind of thing uh, even here in the United States. We see, you know, a lot of our friends and neighbors sometimes seem brainwashed to us, the way they support certain policies and and the way that many of them are now supporting, you know, Bernie Sanders, who supports a lot of the same policies that you grew up with in your in your nation of China. So, it's very important to always speak out, even when you're, say, in a quote-unquote better situation here in America. I don't think you would ever argue that you're not in a better situation than when you grew up. But uh, there's always a danger of slipping back into that. And you're very aware of the danger because you grew up in what 
this country or any country could become if people aren't vigilant, if people aren't informed about their natural rights, if people don't understand the ideas of liberty. And it, it certainly is a commendable job you're doing out there with your Senate campaign, telling your story and, and really advancing these ideas. And before I let you go, Lily, I just want to give you uh, one more chance to tell everyone how they can get involved with your Senate campaign and you know make your final pitch if anybody maybe stumbles upon this interview out there in Colorado and hasn't made up their mind, why should they look into Lily Tang Williams for U.S. Senate? Well, if you love freedom, if you believe truly small and limited government, I am the best candidate for you. You can go to my website, lilyforliberty.com, L-I-L-Y, number four, lilyforliberty.com. Same Facebook page, Lily for Liberty and Twitter, and follow me, please. Share my stories and find out about my passion, why I'm so scared of unlimited government power, because I live through tyranny, and why I have passion for freedom, because that's something I never had. I need money. I need volunteers. I want to win. If I win, go to Washington. That's a strong message to the entire world. You sent a communism survivor to Washington, and she cannot be bought. She cannot sell out. She will stand firm, hold our rights for freedom, and she will be the last line in Washington for our liberties. So please donate if you can on my website or send me a check. I have address on the website. And I need you volunteer if you're in Colorado and share my stories. I need a national press, national TV, and national contributors. And please check me out. And I tell people, trust me to be your freedom fighter. I have been fighting for freedom all my life. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. Thank you so much, Lily. Like I said, your speech was inspiring and hearing your full story here on the show today was even more inspiring. And I'm so excited to have such a passionate advocate for liberty out there fighting for these ideas and in the political arena, because, you know, we might not always like to be involved in politics, but at the end of the day, that's where this conversation can be effective, where you're out there meeting people out there sharing your story every single day. I'm so excited to have you doing it. And I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Mark. You have a great day. Thank you, Lily. Bye-bye. Wow, folks. I sure hope you enjoyed my discussion with the amazing, incredible, inspiring warrior for liberty, Miss Lily Tang Williams. I'm going to keep things pretty short here. I brought you a little bit of a longer show than usual because I really want to allow Lily the time to really detail her whole story of her entire childhood and everything that's led up to her current run for Senate. I really feel like her story is very important, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed speaking to her. Very quickly, if you enjoy this program, easy things to do. Hit that subscribe button on iTunes. Hit it on Stitcher Radio. Hit it on Google Play. I don't even know if they have subscriptions on Google Play. We just got on there. Leave us a five-star rating, leave us a great review, tell your friends about the show, and keep on coming back. This Friday, we've got another edition of Felony Friday, John Odermatt's weekly look at the criminal justice system. And next Monday, well, I'm going to be out of town, but my man Brian McWilliams is going to be hosting a roundtable discussing Gary Johnson's performance on the CNN forum where he and William Weld will actually get airtime on CNN. That's actually going to be tonight for those of you downloading the show on the day it comes out on Wednesday. So check that out and tune in Monday for a roundtable discussion. Until then, folks, live long and live free.